So uh, I'll say the blessing first before we get into the discussion and everything. And then I will bring up the, the topic that I was thinking through earlier this week. Barukata Adonai Loheinu, Melech Haolam, Asher Kidshanu, Bumitzvotav, Vitsivanu, Lasok, Vidivrei Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, sovereign of all, who hallows us with mitzvot, commanding us to engage with words of Torah. <clears throat> okay, so the, the topic that I was thinking about earlier this week that I was kind of chewing through um, because I was listening to a podcast and I heard something that just got the gears spinning a little bit was uh, when is the right time to build a fence around the Torah? Because if you remember... We talked a few weeks ago about, uh, I think it was Jim and Leanne, your guys' words, about the issue, a big issue that was present in Judaism in the times of Yeshua and uh, before and still today even, is the idea of building a fence around the Torah, uh, adding additional things on uh, to prevent to prevent coming even close to it involves pouring water over each hand three times before you eat. And then I think saying a, or reciting something as well along with it. And so in Mark seven, it says the, the Purushim, the Pharisees and the Torah teachers asked him, why don't your Talmudim disciples live in accordance with the tradition of the elders, but instead eat with ritually unclean hands. And Yeshua answered them, Yeshayahu, Isaiah, was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship of me is useless because they teach man-made rules as if they were doctrines. You depart from God's command and hold on to human tradition. Indeed, he said to them, you have made a fine art of departing from God's command in order to keep your tradition. For Moshe said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if someone says to his father or mother, I have promised as a korban or gift to God what I might have used to help you, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, with your tradition, which you handed down to you, or which you had handed down to you, you nullify the word of God and you do other things like this. So in this passage, he, he he's talking about the, the, I can't think of the fancy word, the badness of adding this, this tradition of ritual hand-washing to uh, eating meals in this situation. But then if we go to Matthew 5, 21 to 22, and then 27 to 28, we have an instance where he, where Yeshua is seemingly adding a fence around the Torah of his own. And this is the, this is the passage that a lot of us have heard where he says, you have heard that our fathers were told, do not murder, and that anyone who commits murder will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who nurses anger against his brother will be subject to judgment. Oh, and, and then the second part is, you have heard that our fathers were told, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that a man who even looks at a woman with the purpose of lusting after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Better that you should lose one part of you than have your whole body thrown into gay hinnom. And so uh, in this, in that passage, he, when I, when I heard that one again and thought of it in this context of the, the idea of building a fence around the Torah, it kind of seemed like a contradiction in my head because uh, we've talked about before, like the, one of the main missions of Yeshua when he came was to restore Torah observance and true Torah observance, not, not uh, adding on a bunch of meaningless things that don't have to do with it, uh, restoring true Torah observance. Uh, and so this seems like, a, seemed like a contradiction at first to me. Um, and so I, I will just ask again, when are we supposed to build a fence around the Torah to protect protect ourselves from violating it. Sort of along the lines of last week, the question we asked where, what are the, what are the standards for when we're supposed to have mercy? What are the standards? Like, how, how do we know what these standards are? And so 
I have some ideas that I chewed through and came up with in my thinking about it, but uh, I, I would like to see if you guys have any thoughts of your own first. Does anybody have any thoughts about those two passages and I guess not necessarily a definitive answer on when we build those fences, but what I guess is the difference between <clears throat> those two fences specifically. That's what I think is difficult is figuring out. I don't even know where, what's fence and what's Torah at this point. That's where I'm at is learning, trying to determine what is actually Torah, what is actually mitzvot, what is actually um, embellished or, you know, gilded for the purpose of protecting it. So I can't even definitively, I can't even like differentiate at this point what's fence and what's Torah. And I mean, as I, until I keep studying and keep trying to learn, you know what I mean? Which yeah. fences tend, I understand his frustration with those because it tends to muddy it and make it unattainable or undoable because it's so many uh -huh. and so much. Yeah. So I think that's what he was saying his purpose was is to, you know, make it less burdensome. Yeah, but I don't even. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out which is which. So, as far as between the two, I don't. I don't really know. So I, I was thinking about it, trying to figure out why, why not the ritual hand washing fence, but the if you if you even think about these things, you already you already broke the commandment and. Uh, if your sin or if your eye causes you to sin and pluck it out, but why that fits? So the first thing that I thought about it is that in the Mark situation with the hand washing, the fence there is, it seems like a tradition that doesn't really have anything to do with any specific Torah commandments. It's, it seems like sort of a, an independent thing that's very unrelated to the existing commandments, the existing not necessarily the existing systems, but the existing ways of the systems. And so it, it doesn't really seem to be built around protecting anything in the Torah itself. It seems to just be an independent tradition. Or in other words, whether you do this ritual or not, you're not more or less likely to violate any commandments in the Torah. Mm -hmm. And so for them to accuse Yeshua and his disciples for or hold it against them that they don't do it, it is, it, it's not something that's commanded. It doesn't, it's not even a fence that protects the Torah itself necessarily. So there was no place for accusing them, at, at least to my knowledge with, with the idea of handwashing. And then number two, the second thing that I was thinking of is uh, additionally, in that passage in Mark with the hand washing, Yeshua says that he took issue with how the Prushim, the Pharisees, elevated this tradition to the same level, or in their case, even above the Torah itself. And in his, his plight against the Pharisees, he goes on about how they neglect other commandments while upholding their own man-made tradition. And he cites the prophet Yeshayahu or Isaiah who spoke of this happening, uh, elevating man-made traditions, man-made commandments above the commandments of God or the Torah. And for, for our day, we, I think, to sort of put it into perspective for us, I think we could take prayer before meals as an example. So praying, praying before a meal is not something that's commanded in scripture at all, though we typically see it as a necessity or we frown on it when people don't pray before a meal. And praying and blessing God before a meal itself might be a good thing. It's certainly not a bad thing. Uh, but when we, when we hold it above God's direct commandments or when we, when we observe it with more effort more esteem than the other commandments 
or not the other commandments, but the actual commandments, then it, I think it falls into the same arena as this hand washing ritual. It's not, it's not something we're commanded. And so if we hold praying before a meal or any other number of things that might be, they might be not be bad things in themselves, but if we hold them above the Torah or observe them in place of, or in neglect of Torah, then it becomes, it becomes a bad offense. <clears throat> so those are, those are my thoughts on those, but I cut off, I cut into other people's thoughts. I mean, other people's response. So you are. maybe other people have response. Thoughts. Oh yeah, yeah. Does anybody else have thoughts on those two passages and just the idea of building a fence around it in general? Oh wait. Oh. I wonder if. Oh, Leanne. Leanne was talking, but I have my. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. I have my volume turned down. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Can you hear us now? Yeah, I can hear you. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm talking for a super long time. I I had my volume turned down. I didn't even realize it. Well, I found that raise your hand thing. Did that come through? Yeah, that came through. <laughs> I didn't even know where that was possible. <laughs> so we were just talking about that. I mean, while you were talking, um, that is like, that is like the biggest issue. Like it's so huge. Um, I would just caution you to not try to, um, decide what you believe about that in a week or in a day or in a month because there that that is a multi-layered um thing that you're dealing with and um there's the sanhedrin comes into that the rules of the sanhedrin are binding upon judaism um do i know what they all are absolutely not does jim know no but they are binding whether or not we understand why um, is kind of irrelevant. And um, that it, it grinds us that have not been raised in Judaism, you know, that, well, this isn't really in Torah and it may not be, but there's, there's explanations and um, it, it kinda, it's kinda, we're kind of coming at this, um, behind the eight ball and like for example the sabbath day journey that is what they did in the book of acts was not the sabbath day journey a sabbath day journey is like seven miles but they were only allowed to go half a mile and um so there there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into that for example the set the passover seder 90 percent of the passover seder is tradition it is not required mm -hmm. and we do it because it, it helps us learn. It helps children learn. Um, and it, it's like, you know, coming into a group of traditions, a group of um, things that some people are raised in. Like it would be like a Jew trying to become a, a Christian. They would be like, why do you do this? It makes no sense where it makes complete sense to us. And so just, you know, don't, don't beat yourself up if you don't understand what, why they do what they do, you mm. know, right off the bat, because it, it, there's complex reasons for the things that they do. And do I think all of them are binding? No, but do, do, do I think some of the things are binding that we think are, shouldn't be binding? Yes. I guess mm. In, in the examples, maybe you were using, <clears throat> the one thing I'm wondering is if that was a, a question of, it was, it was a hidden question, maybe Which? the hand washing. So if it was a question meant to reveal something more than just why aren't you washing your hands, it was meant to reveal <clears throat> which sect you're following or, you know, I mean, yes. something that they were asking beyond why aren't you washing your hands? Oh, okay. And know. for example, there are, there are sects of Judaism. There's a prayer. One of the daily prayers is 
Jim and I call it holes because <laughs> we're, you know, goofuses, but it's basically you're thanking God every time you go to the bathroom that all your holes work because if they didn't, you would not be able to live another day and serve God. So um, now there are Jews who pray that every single time they go to the bathroom, what, regardless of what they do when they're in there, every single solitary time. The, and it, it, they, it's kind of expected that you would do that, but there's, a, there's some that don't do it every time. Some only do it once a day. Some, you know, and the, I mean, the prayers, I mean, you can get totally bogged down just in the prayers. Yeah, you can get nothing done all you're doing is praying yeah and if you if you know if you followed all the prayers as they are written in a sedor the 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 morning prayers would take you two hours and then you had the afternoon prayers and then you have the evening prayers so and i thought that they were binding i thought that that was a binding thing until i just found out recently that that's not binding there's only like two very small portions of it that the sanhedrin made binding but I didn't know that. So here I was all thinking, you know, and Jim was thinking, here we go. We got to do all this stuff every day. And it's like, you know, overwhelming. But we found out that that was not the case. Hmm. So it's it's like a lifelong. This is a lifelong challenge. <laughs> and interpretation. Yeah. The mission is like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24 volumes. Of, of just Sanhedrin law <laughs> and, 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 and the interpretations of that law. So if you, you know, if you start trying to drill into, you know, fence around the Torah and all that, and you really got to start looking at the law and the court of Sanhedrin and why those laws were made and what, what court or what cases um set the precedent for that ruling on that so it's it's a lot bigger than just <clears throat> oh this is offense or it's not offense and that's why rbl said everybody needs a rabbi yeah yeah exactly <laughs> because you really do if you're going to tackle this kind of thing it's it's monumental yeah you're, you're talking uh senior level thesis stuff uh, and looking at it from a elementary school uh, knowledge, and it's, mm -hmm. it's it's bigger than it's bigger than big. So I, I just don't want you to feel like you know. Oh gosh, you I gotta have an answer. I, I have to have an answer to this because it's just it's just so huge. Yeah. Don't don't feel like you have to understand it all right now because I don't. I mean, maybe I'm just stupid, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, but but does sound a lot more complicated than I expected. And I have been trying to go to scripture expecting complication. So <clears throat> just take, be easy on yourself is what we're saying. Yeah. Seems like alcohol is a, is a offense. Yes. Oh, playing cards, mm -hmm. going to movies. Yeah. But yeah. a lot of those are, a lot of those are Christian fences. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The Puritans and you know they put those fences right around around Christians. So yeah, you know it's the same kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. All right. We're, we'll shut up now. Goodbye. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> thank. Yeah. Thank you for your insight, though. And I, I'm sorry again that I had the volume down for that whole time. But yeah, so um, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that is, uh, yes, more more complicated than I expected, and I hope I hope we can be okay. Just kind of like I talked about the first day, sitting in our just sitting in the discomfort of our not knowing anything. So. But we'll, we're gonna we're gonna be learning. Yes, not 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 knowing anything passively, but not knowing anything as we look for it. So, um, did did you say? Oh yeah, you're gonna read it out there. Okay, so now we'll get into half an hour in, like last week. Yeah. The the yeah. passage for the week. I think. I think so. Okay. 
Okay, so this is Genesis 8 that we're going to read through. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God caused the spirit to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of, of the heavens were closed, and the rain from heaven was restrained. The waters then receded from upon the earth, receding continuously, and the waters diminished at the end of 150 days. And the ark came to rest in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the, of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat, the, the waters were continuously diminishing until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. He sent out the raven, and it kept going and returning until the waters dried from upon the earth. <clears throat> then he sent out the dove from him to see whether the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove could not find a resting place for the sole of its foot, and it returned to him to the ark, for water was upon the surface of all the earth. So he put forth his hand and took it and brought it to him to the ark. He waited again another seven days and again sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, an olive leaf it had plucked with its bill. And Noah knew that the waters had subsided from upon the earth. Then he waited again another seven days and sent the dove forth, and it did not return to him again. And it came to pass in the six hundred, in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the waters dried from upon the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground had dried. And in the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was fully dried. God spoke to Noah, saying, Go forth from the ark, you and your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Every living being that is with you and all and of all flesh, of birds, of animals, and all creeping things that move on the earth, order them out with you, and let them teem on the earth, and be fruitful, and multiply on the earth. So Noah went forth, and his sons, his, his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every living being, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that creeps on the earth came out of the ark by their families. Then Noah built an altar to Hashem, and took of every clean animal, and of, and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Hashem smelled the pleasing aroma, and Hashem said in his heart, I will not continue to curse again the ground because of, of man, since the imagery of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again continue to smite every living being as I have done. Continuously all the days of the earth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Okay, so we're in, that was Genesis 8, and we're going to get into the content of that before we go on to a little bit of Genesis 9 for today. So at the start of Genesis 8, we see that God remembered. And I, we might have mentioned it once already, but a lot of the time in scripture that the word remember is used, and pretty much all of the time that it is used in reference to God, it doesn't mean we or he passively have something brought to our mind that was previously forgotten for God specifically whenever it says God remembered it's not as if God somehow got distracted and then remembered a person or thing that he forgot in that process when it says that God remembered it is it's usually always preceding some action or a fulfillment of previous prophecy on his part uh, in the Similarly, the concept of remembering in scripture as a whole is often tied to action for us as well. And as an example of this, consider when we are commanded to remember Yom Shabbat or the Sabbath day. It's not, remembering the Shabbat is not a passive process where we're just supposed to remember that the Shabbat exists. The idea is remember and do or remember and guard the Shabbat. And, and so that it's similar to similar to to belief or faith it's not it's not just believe or have faith that yeshua existed as a person the james or his his name yaakov or jacob in the the new testament in his letter he explains that he he explains the idea of just belief by itself he says you know what what separates you from the demons if you just have belief they believe that god exists they they believe that he exists but they don't they don't observe torah they don't they don't 
obey him. That that is what should set us apart from them because uh, some just like with remembering belief is also tied to action so remembering belief they're they're both things in scripture that are are often tied and inseparable from action that comes after it <clears throat> and so that's that's something important to keep in mind especially for when it says god remembered because uh as we said he doesn't he doesn't forget things so he he he's about to he's about to do something he's about to fulfill something on his part and additionally in verse one when it says that god caused a wind to pass over the earth or spirit to pass over the earth the word there is ruach which we talked about previously at the start of genesis so ruach is the word that's often used for spirit as in the ruach hakodesh or the holy spirit as well as wind and breath and i mean i mean i don't know for sure but it seems to be the same wind that hovered over what are called the waters of the deep back in genesis one and additionally the the sage rashi his commentary notes that when it speaks about the fountains of the deep in verse two it does not include the word all as it did in chapter seven in chapter seven when it's talking about the start of the flood and it says it's talking about the floodwaters first coming on the earth it says all the fountains of the deep were opened or all the all the springs of the deep were opened but here in chapter eight now when it's talking about the the floodwaters dying down the floodwaters going away it doesn't it doesn't say all the fountains of the deep like it did in chapter seven and so what he suggests is that this means uh that the springs the the underground fountains that we have today are ones that were kept around after the flood to to keep the earth in the state that we have today <clears throat> so there were there were some that were left open to keep to to tend to the earth and keep or keep fulfilling the purpose that the fountains serve today in a lot of places still towards the end of the flood we get to the section about the birds and so Towards the end, Noah opens the window of the ark and he sends out a raven first. And the raven didn't find food or anywhere to land. So Noah sends out the <clears throat> dove instead to see if it can find a resting place. And so the, first he sends out the raven. It's, it's circling around the ark. It's not finding anywhere to go, finding any food to bring back. So he sends out the dove instead and uh, the dove does it similarly doesn't find a resting place at first and even though if you look a couple of verses before it says the mountaintops were visible now uh, the mountaintops didn't have trees on them there weren't any trees around yet so the dove even though there was technically land the dove couldn't find a resting place yet as in a tree or a place to build a nest <clears throat> and then he he waits I think seven days it said, and then he sends out the dove again. And this time the dove brings back an olive leaf. And uh, one, I don't quite understand all of the significance yet of olives and olive trees, but the, these trees are things that carry a lot of significance throughout scripture. Along with the appearance here in the flood, we also see olive oil and olive, olives and olive trees uh, a lot. And olive oil specifically, we see later on in the Torah used for anointing oil for people and objects like the ark and altar and for in sacrifices. And <clears throat> with this information about the olive tree that the, the, the dove found and the fact that there were any plants at all afterward, this brings another question to mind. How did all the plants and vegetation come back or live through the flood we're not really told about it but it might just be as simple as god simply making the plant survive like he did with the fish through the flood or just planting them again after the flood somehow uh it, it doesn't explain it but this isn't necessarily a ground shattering issue that strikes a blow to god's validity or anything it, it could just be as simple as they he let them live through the flood I think olives are, I think olive trees are similar to like Osage orange where they're very, very tenacious. 
Mm. And they survive, like you can chop an olive tree down and the shoots will come around and, and rebuild a new plant. So it could have been that it, olive trees are tenacious, like an Osage, like our Osage orange, where you can't, you just can't kill it, mm. which could be why it's used as a picture, potentially. Mm. And that, that would make a lot of sense too, because the olive tree always, usually always symbolizes Israel, I think too. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. for them still being around today, for the, the Jewish people still being around today, despite everything that has happened to them throughout all of history. Mm -hmm. I actually just read a quote by, I don't remember what rabbi it was. It was, he's long gone. It was hundreds of years ago, I think. But he essentially said something along the lines of, there's no miracle that convinces me of God's existence more than the survival of the Jewish people. Mm. Because that is, he, he was, if he had to point to any one miracle as evidence for God's existence, it was the fact that the Jews have survived throughout every every single plate that's hit them all throughout history. And so I, that, that aspect of olive trees makes a lot more sense with that too. And there's got to be a word picture in the fact that that olive branch was brought back. Mm -hmm. I just don't know the entirety of it. Yeah. What the implications of that are in the in the big picture of that. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a question to present. Yeah. What, like, what the olive branch means mm. that it was brought back. Yeah. Land, the, you know? Do you guys know the significance of the the olive branch and the olive tree? <clears throat> As it might apply to the, the dove bringing it back here. That was a no. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I'm looking here. I didn't, I didn't. Um, I'm looking here, and what does it say? Kumash says, "By bringing back a bitter olive leaf in its mouth, the dove was saying symbolically, better that my food be bitter, but from God's hand, than sweet as honey, but de but dependent upon mortal man. For a full year, the dove could not earn its own food. Hunger forced it to rely on Noah's kindness. Then it found a bitter leaf that would." ordinarily not eat. Straight <clears throat> back to Noah preaching the lesson of the sages that even the bitterest of food eaten in freedom is better than the sweetest food given in servitude. Hmm. I just think there's a bigger picture of the olive branch coming back as it relates to you know Israel and I don't know. Yeah. I just don't know what it is yet. Mm -hmm. Probably just the first branch I found. Probably. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But maybe we'll find out eventually yeah. what it actually is. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> figure it out. Okay. Now we we get to the part where Noah is now allowed to leave the ark now after the waters start to go down and go away after the dove brings back that olive olive branch or the olive leaf. And there's something interesting that I, I didn't pick up on until I, we were reading through the Kumash earlier. And in telling Noah that the ark would save him from the flood, God uses his, his personal divine name, which we, we usually substitute Adonai, Hashem, or Lord in place for in most Bibles. And so this name, his, his personal name as he revealed to Moses, uh, it typically is thought to denote God and his attribute of mercy, which makes sense because as he was telling Noah that he would be saved from the flood, uh, he was he was acting mercifully to Noah and humanity as a whole for being allowed to survive. But in telling Noah to leave the ark, though, he goes back to using the name Elohim for a little bit, which we said at the beginning of the study denotes God in his attribute of justice and as ruler, which is important here. And so I, I haven't thought, thought much significance of the other times that when I read the Kumash, it says it uses the name Hashem here, God's personal name to denote his attribute of mercy because it uses his personal name like 99% of the time in the Torah from what I can remember. So I, I don't know that I want to point to any one 
situation and say, this is why it's used here because it's used so much throughout the Torah. But I don't, I didn't really pay attention to it. And I didn't really understand why he suddenly switched back to using Elohim, the impersonal, just generic name for God at first or in this situation with Noah leaving the ark. And I think a couple other instances in the, in the flood story, but this makes a lot of sense because if it denotes his attribute of justice and denotes him as ruler, which is what the title Elohim means, it's important here because it shows that God dominates all of nature and all of the world to carry out his desires. Uh, it, and it, now that the flood is over, he, he reverts back to his attribute of justice because uh, the, not that he doesn't have mercy anymore, but the, the time of mercy has, has, has shifted a little bit here after the flood ends. And additionally, it's, it's the same name that God used during the creation process, the, the title Elohim. And he, he's now using it throughout this process of the new creation in a way. He's using it now that Noah and his family have exited the ark and they're going to be repopulating the earth now. So, so you, during creation and the exiting of the ark, he refers to himself in the form of justice during the inhabitation of the ark, he refers to himself in the attribute of mercy. Yes. Okay. That, that's what the, the Kumash explained. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, I, I typically don't, I don't pay a ton of attention to when it talks about, uh, in this situation, it uses the name Hashem, which denotes God and his attribute of mercy because it uses Hashem like all throughout the Torah and the Bible as a whole. But it, to to it's interesting that, that it has it separated yeah, but, in that. Then, then yeah, all of a sudden but, you can see the pattern of that and what the significance would have been. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I, I, I wasn't sure why it suddenly switched back to using Elohim for a little bit, but then, the, yeah, this one. This one I think made a bit more sense with that. And so after leaving the ark now, Noah begins to make offerings to God. And he, he understood that the reason that God told him to take seven pairs of clean animals is so that he could make offerings to God after the flood if he wished to. Because as I mentioned before, God, uh, the, there's the misconception that Noah took two of every animal on the ark no, it was only two of every unclean animal. Of all the clean animals, he had to take seven pairs of them on the ark so that after the flood was over, he could make offerings and sacrifices to God <clears throat> with those clean animals because it was the only ones that he could make clean, make offerings with. And additionally, there, there's a really interesting tradition and uh, not, not tradition as in action, but tradition as in a like a story yes like a story or belief that's been passed down i don't know if it's true or not but the tradition is that the place of noah's offering is the same location mount moriah as the altar location for adam and cain cain and havel or abel the binding of yitzhak or isaac by abraham and the altar location for david and solomon which is also supposed to be the location of the temple in Jerusalem. And so the, the, the tradition is that all, all of these different events and altars took place at the same location at Mount Moriah. I think the <clears throat> Jacob's dream. dream was, they say it's that he slept on the same rock that yeah. Isaac was bound on. Yeah, I think we... <clears throat> that, that was Rabbi... William, right? That, yeah. that said that. Yeah. <clears throat> so if that's true, then that would be really, really cool that essentially every every major altar or sacrifice or uh, and then the ones even before like the temple and everything by all of the, the very important righteous people took place at the same location. <clears throat> Um, and then after that, 
God makes a statement that mankind is evil from his youth. And so in this, we, we see again that man is born with the evil inclination before he has the power and the intellect to oppose it. And so in God's covenant that he makes with Noah, he promises to never wipe out mankind as a whole again with this in mind, this evil inclination from youth. Uh, though we still have individual sin and the individual punishment that follows from our sin. Uh, he, he just won't, he won't destroy the entire earth again all at once. And additionally, God reassures Noah that the natural cycle of the world, the, the days and nights, the seasons, all of these cycles will not cease, which seems to suggest that even these cycles may have been affected during the flood because why would he mm -hmm. if it wasn't happening why would he say i'm not gonna mess with day and night and seasons or anything anymore so i i mean it doesn't say it before that from what i've seen but uh that would be something interesting to look into more as well to see if there's more information about what what in what on the earth was being changed along with just everything being flooded <clears throat> and so that that brings us to the end of chapter eight with what i had for okay. that huh okay and then we'll read through oh yeah are there any comments or questions or things to jump into further for chapter eight i think we can do chapter nine then God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and everything that moves on earth and in all the fish of the sea. In your hand they are given. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Like the green herbage, I have given you everything. But flesh with its soul, its blood, you shall not eat. However, your blood, which belongs to your souls, I will demand. Of every beast will I demand it. But of man, of every man for that, of his brother, I will demand the soul of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply on it. And God said to Noah and to his sons with him saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you and with every living being that is with you, with the birds, with the animals, and with every beast of the land, with you of all that departed the ark to every beast of the land, and I will confirm my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of my covenant that I give between me and you and every living being that is with you to generations forever. I have set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall happen when I place a cloud over the earth and the bow will be seen in the, in the cloud. I will remember my covenant between me and you and every living being among all flesh. And the water shall never again become, become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow made shall be made in the cloud and I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living being among all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have confirmed between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. Yeah, so we're we're only going to go up to the rainbow section today. And then next week, in addition to doing 10 and 11, we'll do the end of chapter 9 with the situation with Noah and Canaan and everything. <clears throat> Canaan's not born yet. When yeah. that happens. Well, okay, never mind. Yeah. Oh, damn. Yes. So at the start of chapter nine, we have another or a repeating of the commandment that we saw earlier in Genesis that God gave to Adam and Hava, which is be fruitful and multiply, where God is commanding procreation. And this is also something that still applies to us. It's our responsibility to bring offspring into the world. There are, there's typically thought to be 613 commandments in the Torah, and the commandment of procreation is the very first one chronologically. It comes at the very start of, at the very start of Genesis when 
Adam and Havah, the first humans were first created. And so the, this, is, this is an important responsibility for us that we, we bear children, we bring offspring into the world. <clears throat> and I actually just learned something interesting from another podcast uh, from uh, Rabbi Yaakov Wolby, one of, one of the episodes of his podcast. And the, there's this idea, and I don't know all the evidence behind it, but there's an idea in Judaism that explains the importance of this commandment. In Judaism, it's thought that there is a finite amount of souls for use that are stored somewhere in God's realm or, or in heaven somewhere. And so there's, there's this, uh, for lack of a better term, storage building at, on, in God's realm that he, he pulls a soul from each time someone's born and attaches it to that body, uh, at least to my current understanding of that idea. And so uh, for every person that's born, one of these souls is used. And additionally, kind of relating to this idea, there's a view in Judaism that uh, when when the soul storage is used up, when these when the soul uh, when the soul when the, this pool of souls runs out, then the Messiah will arrive. Uh, or if that's true, then in our case, maybe it means he will Yeshua will return since we we know him to be the Messiah. And so <clears throat> uh, this they they explain the importance of procreation and having children with this in mind because the idea is the more the more children you have the more you have children and if you have children you're you're further reducing the storage of souls that exists somewhere in god's realm and you're lessening the time until the messiah's arrival or again possibly yeshua's return if 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 all of that is true and so I thought that was kind of interesting. The the some of the logic behind why why it's important to to have children. And <clears throat> so after this, we we get to the part where he talks about the animals, and he God puts a fear of mankind in all the animals of the world, so that the rebuilding of the world would not man would not have to be afraid of being destroyed by the animals. And additionally, we've mentioned before that man, prior to the flood, was not allowed to eat meat, but God now gives mankind permission to eat meat, and they're they're allowed to they're allowed to toil over cattle and meat just like they were previously previously allowed to toil over the ground and uh, reap the reward of that. And as we mentioned before, that the the meat that God allowed them to eat was still only permitted meat or kosher meat <clears throat> because that's the only meat that's food. <clears throat> and here we also have the first mention of the prohibition of eating blood. And this is a really big, important thing throughout the Torah and scripture too. The idea that you cannot eat, you cannot eat a creature's blood. And for the reason for this, God gives us the principle that the life is in the blood of the creature. And this principle is vitally important for us to understand as we move <laughs> forward in the Torah. For every living being, God says here, he will demand the blood and an account of the blood. And so this applies to, uh, the, the, the sages say this applies to two things. Uh, number one, we're not, we're not to shed or eat the blood of other beings. Uh, and number two, we're not to shed our own blood. We are prohibited from shedding the blood of other beings, and we're also prohibited from doing the same to ourselves or uh, committing suicide. That's that's what the some of the sages say that this passage is talking about when it refers to ourself. Uh, it says that God will demand an accounting of our own blood and the beings around us, and so. Um, we just, we, we, we cannot make ourselves responsible for the, the destruction or the misuse of any, any creature's blood that we'll have to answer for someday. <clears throat> and, uh, additionally about blood, 
Throughout scripture, blood has immense significance for the purpose of atonement in the sacrificial system. And I, I'm not going to claim to completely understand it yet because I don't, but I think I know the general purpose for blood and for water, which is another big part of the, the, the ritual and sacrifice system. And so I, I'm, I think water and living water, because it, it has to be living water, which is water that I think moves of its own accord or is, is a naturally moving source is what, so this water is meant for ritual cleansing. And I think blood <coughs> is meant for atoning. They, they have, they each have a specific purpose in the Torah. And so interestingly, when in John 1934, when Yeshua is crucified and it says that they pierced his side and both blood and water spilled from his side, uh, these both have important significance. It, I, I think we have a tendency to just be reading through our Bibles really fast and then a section we don't understand just, just kind of pass it off as, uh, well, that's, that's a weird detail. But uh, we have to look at the Torah to see what this means. And again, I don't completely understand it. There's probably a lot that I'm missing. But this it seems to mean with the, the purpose of water and blood in mind that Yeshua both cleansed us ritually and atoned for us if those are the two purposes of uh, water and blood. And so that's, that's just an interesting uh, little sidebar about blood and then water too. <clears throat> and so lastly, it's the, this will be a, another kind of big section, but we have, we have the section about the rainbow. And I've been excited to talk <clears throat> about this since the start of the study, because I, I had a, I, there, we have a misconception about it that I only recently just learned about, and I think it's a very, very important concept to understand. And so, as explained here in Genesis 9, the rainbow is God's covenant sign to us that he'll never flood and destroy the whole world again. And this is, this is really good news for us, because uh, all throughout our history, probably from day one after the flood, we've been we've been worthy of another complete destruction with, with our, our many sins. And so, but after, but now after a rainstorm, the rainbow will be our, our reminder that these rains will not last so long that they will destroy us completely like it did in the situation of the flood. And additionally, the word generations, this, this is an interesting little piece of, piece about the, the Hebrew in this passage. So the word generations in the original Hebrew, though it's pronounced the same, it's spelled without two of the vowel letters that are typically included in the word. Uh, there's two, um, there's, there's usually two of the letter Vav in that word. And so in this spot, those two Vavs are taken out. And so the sages take this to mean that the rainbow would not necessarily be needed in some uh, exceedingly righteous generations, like during the reign of King Hezekiah, they say. <clears throat> and so that was, that's an interesting detail that we don't quite get when we don't understand Hebrew as none of us do, <laughs> unfortunately. And then, so into like the, the misconception part, uh, a, a big piece of further information about the rainbow is that I think we, I think we misconceive what it should mean as regards our faith and our walk with God because at least for me and the way that I thought about it and uh, sometimes see others think about it is uh, when we see the rainbow in the sky we think the rainbow is a good thing for me because it shows that God loves me and <clears throat> the ancient rabbis and the scholars have a different view though on what you should what should be going through your mind when you see the rainbow in the sky which I think is important for us to incorporate into our own thinking. Uh, I, I don't think that we should relish in seeing the rainbow in our skies. God, God says that he will see the rainbow and remember his covenant not, the, not to destroy the earth. He, he's set the rainbow in the sky so that he will see it and remember and not destroy us. And so uh, I think if we see this reminder hanging above our heads, it should make us tremble, if anything. Not, 
not think, uh, oh, well, God, God loves me. I'm, and I'm not saying that God doesn't love us, but I, <clears throat> I, to, to use an example, when, when we're in an interaction with somebody and uh, if they were to clench their fists and grind their jaw, our first thought isn't going to be, I can't believe how much they love me right now. Our first reaction would be like, oh my gosh, how, how did I just offend them? How can I make it better? I think it should be the same way with the rainbow. I think uh, we should see God's fist clenching and his jaws grinding in the sky and not think that, but we should think, what have I done to offend God and how can I fix it? The, the rain, seeing the rainbow in the sky should initiate a return to God and a return to Torah when we see this reminder. <clears throat> um, and then there, uh, I'll take like a sidebar real quick. And there's, there's a Hebrew blessing for when we see a rainbow in the sky that I'll just read off and uh, recite because it's, I, I think it's very interesting and helps with that perspective shift. But I'll read the Hebrew and then the English first. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Zoher Haberit, Venei Aman, Bivrito, Vekayam, Vema'a Maro. My Hebrew is getting a little, or my Hebrew is still a little shaky, but the English is, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who remembers the covenant and is faithful to his covenant and who keeps his word. So we should, we should see the rainbow in the sky and we should be, we should be thankful to God. It should definitely make us scared. Have that, what we talked about last week where the, the injustice of ruining the term fear today uh, and, and the concept of fearing God, I think, I think it should make us afraid and it should, it should initiate a return to what God wants for us. And I think, I think the rainbow is one big example of, out of the many examples of how a very subtle narcissism has just absolutely pervaded the church and our thinking and our faith. And the, the more you look, the more you'll see it, but there are, there are just so many instances in which we, we twist sometimes without even realizing things to be centered upon us or we we simply just reject or discard anything that doesn't involve us or good being done to us in scripture uh, and i hope this isn't term of heresy or anything like that but we've we've sort of castrated god in a way when we try just relentlessly to make every single aspect of him revolve around his love for us and again i'm not i'm in no way saying that he doesn't love us but it does a massive injustice to both God and ourselves when we when we try to prune away every single aspect of Him that doesn't have to do with His love for us. Uh, he because He has a lot more aspects than just that, and He can He do, He can, and He does do a lot more than just do nice things for us or uh, do us cosmic favors and things like that. He. He's love and wrath, he's unity and division, and he's mercy and justice, and many other, many other sets of qualities. And of those qualities, we have a tendency to only focus on the ones that we like or the ones that would be convenient for us. So we, we take the love, we take the unity, we take the mercy, but we, we discard the wrath, the division, the justice, and all of the qualities that would cause discomfort to us. It, our anthropocentric reduction of God to only the qualities that benefit us has resulted in a system over time where we have absolutely no need to obey or fear God at all. It, we, in removing all of these other aspects of God, it allows us to, allows lots of other doctrines and add-ons and removals from scripture to to pervade us and our thinking uh and so the rainbow was just one example of that where uh, at least for me the way i used to think about it it was it was that that narcissistic idea where it was just trying to get everything centered upon myself trying to get everything centered upon 
just love doing good for me uh but that is not all god does he's not he does not exist to be our cosmic favor doer <clears throat> and so i would i would just encourage all of us here to begin or to keep on looking uh inwardly and outwardly at other places and doctrines where the the air quote ugly sides of god are blocked out where we where we or other people whether intentionally or unintentionally just ditch every single aspect of god every single aspect of scripture that isn't isn't fluffy and delightful and in the words of paul in the new testament tickles the ears so <clears throat> i would just encourage us to do that <clears throat> and then that's the end of where you, you about to say something? oh i was gonna say it, it's interesting and i never had thought of it really before but the word rainbow and the visual image of the rainbow is of um an implement of war the bow is an implement of war and of killing so of death and war so if he's showing you it's like he's showing you the bow yeah and i never and the word is bow in in the hebrew a bunch of people he made the covenant after a bunch of people died from rain mm -hmm. basically just a bunch of water mm -hmm. so, yeah so let me look up the that. word look up the hebrew word hebrew word but i mean mm -hmm. our english word is is an implement of death and war so mm -hmm. so i'll look that up but you can fill in some oh i was gonna say i didn't have any more filling oh come on <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> but yeah yeah we we wouldn't we wouldn't like i said we wouldn't look at fist clenched and jaw jaw grinding as um wow he he loves me so much he no, you would you would look at that and you would say like why why is he about to hit me in the face why or when your parents use your real name or your full name yeah you don't think <laughs> to yourself oh man my mom's just so happy to use my full name she just loves the way it sounds yeah it's like <clears throat> no no what did i do wrong yeah <laughs> yeah it, it should be a good reminder to us still but but I mean, it, I think it can be happy too. Yeah, we, we can be happy that be like, oh man, like he's even, having like, mercy that we're not yeah, getting destroyed. We're happy that we're not going to get wiped out. <laughs> but but at the same yeah. time, we should also be like, oh crap, what did I do? Yeah, what am I doing wrong? Mm -hmm. Yeah, if it there's a reason he needs his reminder in the sky, then we should try to find out why he needs that reminder for himself. <clears throat> All right. Okay, so the yeah so the hebrew word for rainbow there is uh keshet which means bow and it has it has four sub bullets underneath bow it says bow for hunting or battle bowmen archers bow figurative of might or rainbow which i assume has a it only term. it only uses it to mean bow in the sky just here in genesis which which means yes it's it is <clears throat> at the very least the same word for a, a war item i wonder if so, it, if like in our modern vernacular it would be almost like ar-15 yeah like AR like like in the sky like a like handgun yeah. we wouldn't be like oh wow yeah. it's beautiful we'd be yeah. like oh gosh okay yeah i'm getting it together yeah <laughs> i'll uh, try and figure it out <laughs> i'm trying I'm coming back to you now yeah. a brightly colored handgun yeah a brightly colored handgun yeah <laughs> just oh, to, wow look at those colors yeah <laughs> just a beautiful guillotine <laughs> <laughs> yeah mm. so yeah that, that's something to to chew on and to start looking into because there there's a whole lot more than just the <clears throat> perspective that we usually take on with the rainbow it's it's just it's bringing about repentance yeah it it's just pervasive in the church and in our doctrines today just everything has to revolve around love and things being Mercy good and forgiveness yeah yeah there's a lot of people who do not think of 
killed yes. <laughs> for what they did. So yeah. So that that's the end of what I have for today. We're actually gonna we, the the last part of Genesis nine is the part with eighteen uh, to twenty eight. Yeah, with with Noah and the the vineyard and the encounter with Ham and then the curse on Canaan. And so we uh we're gonna talk about that next weekend and then chapter 10 I think is a genealogy which again they're not not valuable or anything uh, but we'll do we'll do so the end of nine chapter 10 and then chapter 11 and then uh, and then two weekends from now we will be on to Genesis 12 which is the first instance where we meet man or maybe not the first instance where we meet him but where the story shifts to the man named Abraham, who uh, everything is going to change with him. <clears throat> so uh, before we go, does anybody have any questions or additional things now? <clears throat> okay, so we will we'll finish up for the weekend. So <clears throat> thank you guys for joining on Zoom. See you guys. <clears throat>